0: from Singapore and welcome to the joint webinar organized by the East Asia Institute and the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I'm Principal Research Fellow at MEI. In today's webinar we are going to explore the potential economic and geopolitical impact of China's central bank digital currency, also known as EUN or digital RMB. I'm extremely excited today as we have a dream team of experts that are going to explore with us potentiality and strategy of development of CBDC in China and outside China. Without further ado, please let me introduce our expert. We have Dr. P. S. Srinivas. He's a visiting research professor at East Asia Institute here at the University of Singapore And before joining NUS, uh, Srinivasa has worked with the New Development Bank, also known as BRICS Bank in Shanghai. He was Director General of Strategy, Policy and Partnership. And prior to NDB, he worked for more than 20 years at the World Bank in Washington and also at the ADB in Manila. Uh, I have to personally thank you Srini, uh, simply because uh, he is not now in, uh, in Singapore, he's in Washington, so he had to wake up at 4.30 in the morning to be with us today. Also, we have from London Andrew Caney, he's a senior fellow at RUSI uh, and he is founding director of UK National Committee on China. He has more than 25 years of experience in financial financial consulting, and his previous position include managing partner at Booth's company, Greater China of Operation, partner in charge for Asian government advisory with Tony Blair Associate, and partner leading the Asia Pacific financial institution practice as Boston Consulting Group. Last but not least, in our dream team, we have Professor Xiaogang. Professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Director of the Institute of Policy and Practice at Shenzhen Institute of Finance. is also currently the Chairman of Hong Kong Institution for International Finance, and Professor Xiaogen has held several positions in key academic, policy, regulatory, and business institutions, including Professor at Peking University HSBC Business School. Prior to start our webinar, just to remember to our audience, uh, please, uh, after the first round of question, feel free to send your question via the Zoom box chat, and I will gladly ask them to to our expert. Uh, Personally, please allow me to thank uh, Professor Bert Hoffman, the Director of East Asia Institute, for supporting this webinar. So basically, a lot of ink has been spilled talking about uh, the digital renminbi. Couple of things that we can be sure it was uh, what the digital renminbi is not. It's not a cryptocurrency, it's not Bitcoin, it's not a a stable coin like Tether, likely not like Terra, and also it's not fully functional. Uh, It's in pilot mode, but I think uh, uh, it's not the best way to start a webinar to say what is not. Let's start to say what it is, uh, Chinese CBDC, and we give the floor to our first expert, Professor Xiao Gan. The floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Alex. Uh, this is a tough question. Uh, uh, what is uh, uh, you know digital RMB? Uh, well, I think that the best way to think about it uh, is to think about the uh, the jump from uh, the metal coin uh, towards paper money. Uh, uh, well, the, the digital renminbi uh, is uh, like uh, uh, in the middle of this uh, jump from uh, you know paper money towards uh, electronic uh, money, uh, and uh, the key is to see the dramatic reduction of transaction costs, uh, and uh, this happens in China uh, so fast largely because. Uh, uh, you know, China really already have a very advanced digital payment uh, by private uh, providers. Uh, you all know uh, Alibaba and Tencent. Uh, so so this experiment, uh, it, the objective is really, uh, I think one is to enhance regulation, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, to uh, kind of prepare, uh, uh, avoid uh, some kind of monopoly by private uh, digital payment providers. Uh, And uh, I think the second is really uh, to enhance the, uh, you know, public goods uh, in a sense that, uh, uh, in a process of implementing monetary policy, for example, uh, if you want to uh, distribute the money to individuals, uh, the digital Renminbi uh, could potentially be very effective and China has to do some experiments at a very small scale, but uh, uh, there's a huge potential uh, in, in terms of implementing uh, monetary and the physical policy. Uh, and, and then I think, uh, uh, you know, the digital currency is really like uh, uh, the uh, the cash paper uh, paper money uh, right now. Uh, uh, it's a potential uh, in terms of smart contract uh, has not really uh, used. Uh, I mean, the, it's still in, in the process of developing. Uh, and I think the last, I, I want to emphasize that the, the current digital uh, r and uh, you know, have not changed anything with the regular, Banking services, you know, the two-tier uh, system. Basically, central bank provides some kind of digital cash, uh, but the, uh, all the payment uh, uh, facilities by the banks uh, and regulated by the central bank is, has not changed. Uh, so, uh, so in, in summary, uh, most people uh, in China, including myself, uh, are not uh, finding the digital uh, RMB. Uh, any particular uh, like uh, uh, importance. Uh, it, it's just uh, uh, something uh, in the uh, process of uh, uh, innovation and experiments. You know, we, most people still using, uh, you know, the Alibaba uh, and the Tencent uh, digital payment uh, facilities on the, uh, uh, you know, cell phone. Uh, mobile phone, uh, which uh, can really satisfy most of our uh, regular daily, uh, you know, uh, use yeah. and that. And I think that, that's uh, more or less my understanding. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Uh, and
0: um, you, you talk about the pon- potentiality in China. But now if we want to move a little bit our spectrum of observation outside China, Uh, I think uh, not long ago, People Bank of China mentioned uh, that uh, the digital UN was ready for cross-border use. Uh, And in this respect, China launched uh, another pilot uh, uh, that is the M-CBDC bridge. It's a cross-border digital currency payment across China, Thailand, UAE, and Hong Kong. So in this respect, uh, I I personally believe uh, that not only there are expectations but there is also potentiality, especially if you look uh, uh, at the Middle East uh, and uh, you narrow down to the Gulf, when uh, the le- local economy are transitioning toward a post-oil economy scenario where high-tech and especially fintech are going to play a, a very important role. And uh, in this uh, ready for cross-border use, Andrew, if you can tell us a little bit more.
2: And, and thanks very much for the chance to be on this uh, seminar today and share some perspectives um, I think I'd build on what uh, professor Xiao Gung started with uh, talking about Cbdc's and introduce uh, two distinctions uh, first between retail and what's known as retail and what's known as wholesale CBDC and, and a big focus in China is on exactly retail but what people are using it, uh, an alternative to Alipay and, and Tencent. Uh, there's the area of wholesale CBDC where you bring in a digital currency that is only used by the major financial institutions and it's something, it's part of the plumbing of the way the financial system works uh, and secondly, this question of cross-border, because I, I think we may come later to the question of renminbi internationalization. Now, there are about 100 central banks now working on developing their own or looking at whether they should develop their own CBDC. Um, and those banks aren't saying, should we develop uh, an e-renminbi or saying, should we develop an e-US dollar? They're doing their own currency, an e dirham or an e-rupee or whatever. And the question then is how these CBDCs may link together. And that's exactly what sort of the mbridge is looking at. It's getting a small group of countries that are in the forefront of this innovation and saying, how can we get uh, payments to move between central bank digital currencies? Uh, this has been going now under MBridge, as you talked about uh, with the PRC, Hong Kong, Thailand, and UAE. And I think it's worth reflecting why that is. Uh, it, it comes back fundamentally to what is the benefit? We, we, we know here there's the technology uh, of a digital currency, new technology coming in. Think about it in quite simple terms. Here's a new technology. Where is the benefit? Uh, and as Xiaogun touched on in in China right now, there are some some reasons to do this. At the same time, Alipay and WeChat have pretty good digital payments alternatives already. But if we look at cross-border international payments, they're pretty much a mess. Uh, They're slow, costly, complicated, using correspondent banks, uh, paper verification or separate messaging verification, and also uh, often having to go via the US dollar. So you take two less common currencies in the world. If you want to execute a trade, you go via the US dollar. All this says is, well, here's a great opportunity to get a better solution. And that's what Embridge is all about, getting a better solution, where these payments can happen in the matter of seconds rather than, than days, uh, where you may get up to a, a 50% cost saving. And to put this in the context of the UAE, I, I was struck by a couple of points. Uh, firstly, PwC came out in April with a ranking of uh, which countries are leading in CBDCs. And in the area of Wholesale, as we're talking about, between institutions, the UAE is indeed one of the leaders, as indeed is, is, is Singapore. Um, and secondly, this is not the first time the UAE is doing this. They, they launched in 2019 Project Arba together with, the, uh, with Saudi Arabia, where they created a dual currency uh, CBDC linked to both Saudi Rial and the Durham to get exactly these benefits in cross-border trade. And I think this whole area is a great opportunity uh, to uh, speed up international payments, to reduce costs, just to make things a lot lot simpler. And it's a particular opportunity in the UAE and and also actually in Singapore for uh, financial centers to innovate and leapfrog those who are seeking to establish newer positions and don't have as much of the legacy Infrastructure of the more established global financial centres. So I, th- I think I'll leave it there. But the, the big focus is where's the benefit of putting this technology to work, and I think cross border is a very important area. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Andrea. One thing that you just mentioned right now, more than 100 banks are looking at uh, CBDC. No, I, I find it uh, quite fascinating, and that just spark uh, the, the question uh, to, to Srini. Uh, These uh, more than 100 banks uh, looking at CBDC is just uh, a, a reaction, let's say, it, uh, to the digital UN? Or uh, are many countries, let's say, developing their own CBDC, not only as a competition with China? Srini, the floor is
3: yours. Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I prefer to take the view that many countries are thinking about their own CBDCs uh, more to be prepared for the even more digital future that we are all looking at, as opposed to competing with China. So, in a way, uh, I look at it as you know, it's it's for their own domestic objectives. It's, um, you know, uh, almost an economic imperative for many countries to think about this issue and less of a political statement uh, vis-a-vis China. So, as has been mentioned already, you know, so, um, uh, nearly 100 central banks are doing some, fi- some form of work or the other. There was a recent survey by the Bank for International Settlements uh, that essentially said, you know, um, uh, more than 90 bank- 90% of the banks that it surveyed are doing some form of work, about a quarter of them. Uh, had already issued or were at advanced stages of issuing a CBDC, and about two thirds of them are planning to, you know, go live uh, in the next, within the next five years. So clearly, there's a lot of action in this area, and uh, we can expect to see continuing action as uh, as uh, things progress. Uh, that said, obviously, I think you know, I mean, um, there are a, quite a few countries where there, there is ongoing work, but. Uh, Uh, views are different on the timeline for introduction of CBDCs and uh, the U.S. and the UK are are examples in this area. Uh, The Monetary Authority of Singapore also published a report recently in which it looked at uh, the the need for a retail Singapore dollar and um, while it concluded that uh, yes, it should be prepared in terms of technology and policy for this to happen. Um, You know, is that immediately uh, urgent is something that, uh, you know, it it, it wasn't very clear Uh, or or they they concluded it wasn't uh, an urgent necessity. So uh, there has been, you know, I think the uh, earlier speakers have clarified a little bit. I think uh, it's important in my view to to clarify that what we are discussing in this webinar is largely as retail CBDC, which is what the ECNY right now is. And this is essentially an alternative to cash for the, for the population of a country, uh, just as um, you know, cash is backed by the full faith and credit of the uh, government, so is a uh, CBDC. Um, and then I also often hear, or when I read some of the popular press at least, there is some degree of confusion between things like cryptocurrencies, stable coins, you know, digital-based transaction platforms uh, such as WeChat Pay or Alipay and CBDCs. So I think it's just important to clarify that, you know, I mean, you have, you know, CBDC is not a cryptocurrency, which are not backed by the full faith and credit of any government. Uh, they are not stable coins, although, you know, stable coins are looking at are backed by the either other cryptocurrencies or, or securities of, uh, or, or cash. Uh, of uh, that that's government issued. And then it's not a retail, it's it's not an internet based payment mechanism like Alipay or WeChat is, Uh, CBDC is same as cash except in a digital form. And um, so uh, I I think, you know, it's also important to uh, keep in mind that much of the government backed money as we know it today is already digital. Uh, you know, from a public's perspective, you have money that consists of cash and coins in circulation, which is physical, of course. But, you know, deposits at banks, uh, your money market mutual funds, CDs, etc. And these are all, you know, already in digital form. Uh, then you have, you know, m- modes of payment like credit cards or debit cards, which are also settled through bank deposits. Um, digital payment modes, uh, such as wechat which are also linked to bank accounts. So most of these are already digital and central bank liabilities to banks, the commercial banks are already in the form of digital reserves. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the fact that, you know, cash is cash use is declining, is a global phenomenon and cash is generally, you know, incompatible with the digital economy. So, uh, for example, you know, the recent report of Monetary Authority of Singapore, again, says that 92% of money supply in Singapore is already digital. Just 8% is in cash and coins. And um, the U.S., the Fed says the numbers are about you know, one-fifth of the transactions of the U.S. citizens are um, in cash. Um, and you know, in China, the point-of-sale uh, use of cash is just about 13%. So, globally, cash use is declining. So now coming to your so the question of you know are they competing with China or are they doing it for themselves? Um, I mean in my view CBDCs are basically an effort by governments to provide an alternative to their citizens to holding physical cash, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic, if anything, has moved even more of our lives online, and this is some of the, you know one of the reasons why uh, you know for countries are focusing on, on CBDCs so uh, there are many motivations running across uh, the countries that are looking at these issues uh, some of them are different uh, each country has its own uh, individual motivations but there are some common threads as well the, the driving force um, is you know, uh, the increasing popularity of cryptocurrencies and stable coins they have led you know CBDCs. they have led central banks to focus on these and um, they are also central banks are facing facing globally pressure to do, you know, make sure that their payment systems are more geared towards the digital age. So uh, one, uh, so that's one reason why they are thinking about CBDCs. Uh, another is the um, risk management. I mean, many central banks are looking at the possibility of what what sort of risks uh, might uh, cryptocurrencies expose their uh, payment systems to, and are looking at CBDCs as possibilities to help address some of these risks. Um, there, as was discussed already, I think, you know, um, the effic- improving the efficiency of cross-border transactions, which is, you know, uh, uh, as Andrew rightly mentioned, is, is messy, uh, as of today, is another driving force. Um, and these, because particularly as cross-border transactions are very you know, lengthy and costly, and the question is, can CBDCs help to reduce these things? Uh, And um, then uh, I think one of the uh, positive outcomes of all of this is the amount of is the degree to which central banks of various countries are working together to see whether they can coordinate uh, you know regulatory approaches to digital currencies. Uh, One of the reasons, uh, and uh, the other reasons why countries are focusing on CBDCs is to make sure that the payments infrastructure that they have in their respective countries. Uh, continues to be available to all of their residents as we go more uh, digital. So it's true for developing countries where financial inclusion is a problem. There are significant segments of the population uh, that sometimes don't have access to the financial system. But in advanced countries as well. So for example, you, know, you have Sweden where there is a rapid decline in the use of cash and there are segments of the population still particularly for example the elderly uh, which may prefer to use cash but they don't have that option and if uh, you know firms stop accepting cash as a means of payment there's a there's a need for the sovereign to think about how it is that it continues to uh, make such uh, things available uh, may, may make uh, you know the system available to these segments of the population Um, So I I touched upon financial inclusion. This is a major reason why some of the developing countries are looking at CBDCs and how it can help. Um, In in developed countries, the focus is less on financial inclusion because that is already high, but more on the efficiency and safety of their uh, payment systems, of their domestic payment systems, and trying to reduce the the risk. Financial stability concerns, in a sense, are the driving force for more of the advanced countries. And, um, you know, um, uh, an, another reason why for some countries to focus on CBDCs is to ensure that their payment systems continue to function even when natural disasters occur. So, for example, one of the first countries that went live uh, with uh, its CBDC was the Bahamas. And they driving, one of the driving forces was the, uh, was the 2019 hurricane, where, you know, the uh, fact that it relied on, dig- on physical cash made it very difficult to deliver benefits to people who were affected by the hurricane. So the idea is can the digital forms of cash such as the CBDC help? Uh, On the other end of the spectrum, you have China, um, you know, a a large country that sees the risks to its payment system differently, but the the underlying reason is still risk management. As uh, Professor Shaogang mentioned, and we have, you know, the two major payment providers Alipay and WeChat Pay, the articulated reason of the PBOC is, you know, one of the, at least one of the reasons is what happens if one or both of these firms fails? And then the EC and BI could actually act as a potential backup as a digital platform. So uh, you know uh, these issues, along with uh, you know uh, the uh, you know uh, some of the other things that uh, you know countries are thinking about is you know can CBDCs be helpful in um, reducing uh, illegal activities such as money laundering or you know, other illegal transactions um, or the risk of currency substitution which is if you if you don't have your own cbdc can the you know the population might prefer to use a foreign digital currency for their domestic transactions and therefore substitute out of the domestic currency so these are all some of the reasons why i you know, why countries are looking at it and at, at cbdcs and they are in, at different stages of thinking about them Uh, You know, I mean, competition with China doesn't rank very high on the list in most of the surveys that have been conducted. So therefore, clearly China's ECNY has undoubtedly given uh, encouragement or impetus for many of these countries to think about CBDCs. But uh, in my view, the major objectives uh, remain their national domestic objectives and, uh, you know, broadly across many, the improving cross-border transaction efficiency.
0: Thank you very much. It was a very comprehensive uh, picture of uh, internal use, uh, especially on the retail part of the CBDC, but also some problematic that stem out uh, looking at financial inclusion, um, at the fact that COVID 19 accelerates the use of digital money and also a very important issue that borderline with risk management, such as uh, money laundering. While our audience is warming up to ask some question, uh, I was just smiling before when Andrew mentioned about the internationalization of the renminbi. Why I was smiling? Because when I was living in China in the late 90s was the buzzword. Was everybody were talking about was renminbi internationalization. Uh, in the 2000 was still there, I still remember Shanghai World Expo 2010, uh, still it was there, but now are we going to see uh, an internationalization of the renminbi and uh, the digital UN is going, uh, let's say, to enable or put on the fast track the internationalization of renminbi. Uh, so again, what's your take on this?
1: Well, uh, put this way, uh, you know, the, the, there's two aspects, you know. Uh, one is that, uh, uh, you know, uh, the RMB, right? The biggest uh, bill of paper RMB is 100 yuan, right? So if we increase the, uh, you know, the print uh, 1,000 yuan or even 10,000 yuan, that it makes it very convenient to bring the paper money cross border, you know, uh, of uh, you know, but that that technical improvement is not going to change people's trust on the currency. You see, so so digitalization, yes, it it makes it very convenient uh, to bring money cross border. Uh, but you know, internationalization of a currency, it, it, you know, it really depends on the trust on the entire institutions of the country behind the, the currency. You see, so I think, uh, yes, uh, r is going to be internationalized gradually. That is because, uh, uh, you know, we are in a digital age, you know, the, 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 the diffusion of uh, influence and the power, you know, uh, to every country, you know, is happening. Uh, so in that sense, you know, we will see r internationalization and uh, India's currency, other countries' currency, they are all going to be internationalized because the technology, because of the you know global geopolitical you know situation, right? Uh, so in that sense, you know, the, the uh, uh, we need uh, differentiate uh, uh, what is really uh, internationalization of the RB. You know, it, it is a trend, uh, but that trend uh, has very little to do with the technical improvement of the convenience uh, of the uh, you know the uh, uh, because of the uh, digital technology you know so that that's my view you know it's it's a you know because we already have very convenient digital payment systems uh, uh, through Swift and others you know uh uh, and china has its own uh like uh uh, so so i think the key is really uh, uh, the whole institutions which backs uh, the currency in terms of regulating the use of the money and regulating the use of the money is actually regulating uh, all the contracts all the activities you know supported by the currency so so I think uh, in that sense you know the uh, if we look at the US dollar look at the uh, RB you know they have entirely different uh, regulatory systems and how robust that system would determine the internationalization of r and D relative to the US dollar. Uh, and the technical uh, conveniency you know, is it, it, helping uh, the diffusion of the power in general, uh, but it, it, its uh, uh, influence is gonna be limited uh, by more important factors, you know, which is really about the institutions.
0: Thank you very much and uh, what you just mentioned uh, and also Srini mentioned uh, uh, is the fact that each country is focused on its own CBDC, but uh, I'm not uh, as you as an economist, I come from the international relations field where there's more zero-sum gain uh, and especially now when we are talking about China we talk about friction. So uh, I want to ask a question, I'm putting two questions together uh, that I saw in the the question box from the audience and uh, it's also mentioned uh, in uh, our uh, trailer for for today's webinar, Uh, the UK House of Lords has concluded that uh, CBDC may be a solution in search of a problem. So there are countries who are not believing uh, uh, in the future of this kind of uh, digital currency, but uh, also there are intelligence organizations, and I mean in the West, that are pointing the finger to China, uh, looking at, let's say, a sort of digital UN as a way to avoid sanction and avoid using SWIFT. Uh, what's your take on this, Andrew?
2: A, a couple of things. Uh, maybe I'll start, if I may, by uh, coming, picking up on, on Xiao Gun's comments about renminbi internationalization. He and I were working together about probably 10 years ago now on, on this, the question of renminbi internationalization as well. Uh, I, I think. Completely agree with his comments and it comes down a little bit to the, being more specific. What do we mean by internationalisation? And and classically, it means you know, the use of the currency as a, a reserve asset. And the dollar took over from the pound sterling, and will the renminbi at some point in the future take over from the US dollar? And you know, basically, Siao gang's answered that question about the the, the, the need for questions on institutions. Uh, Short term, there's a question of benefits and its use uh, of the use of the renminbi in trade. And if I'm sitting um, now somewhere in maybe in the UAE and I have a choice between pushing a button and paying in renminbi and the trade settles immediately because I'm using the CBDC versus going through the traditional correspondent banking system and it takes me um, a few weeks or maybe it's just a few days and it costs me more. Well, maybe I will do that trade in renminbi. And for that instant, as it were, I'm happy to do the trade in renminbi, as long as I can immediately switch out of renminbi um, through some offshore market into dirhams or dollars or whatever. And in that narrow sense, the CBDC may, uh, or the leadership of the renminbi may give China some advantage. But as I touched on earlier, China's also very heavily engaged in getting the opera- operationalization of working across digital currencies, which would remove that need, uh, exactly as in Project Arba uh, between Saudi and the UAE, who already said, you know, we don't need to decide on the dirham or the rial. We can just create a mechanism where we, we trade together in the currencies we each have. And this is primarily a domestic question. Now, we, we come to the UK. I was you know, g- giving some thought to the ERMMB just as the House of Lords came out with its report. And I had two reactions to it. Um, One is it's a a high quality piece of analytical work uh, going very much along the lines that Srini talked about saying, well, let's look at this technology of a digital currency and understand what is the benefit? What is the problem it's trying to solve? And it may be it's a a lower cost than cash, for example, it's a digital payment. I, I won't repeat all the things Srini said, but all those benefits are there and they go through them one by one. And essentially they conclude that um, the UK doesn't really need this, that the UK already, you know, as Xiao Gong was saying, we already, the, the consumer in the retail space, already um money is digital. I, I tap with a contactless card, or it's in my Apple phone, or whatever. And what does it mean that it's a different type of digital cash? That's a, a distinction without a difference from the point of view of the consumer and we still have issues of digital uh, financial inclusion in the UK and some people not having bank accounts, but is this really the best way to solve it? And so on the one hand, I think this was a very uh, focused piece of work which stepped through saying, the benefits need to be domestic, that's gonna be driving the adoption. Do they apply? Answer, not really. So that's one, one route and one can replicate that I think for many, uh, especially more developed economies, but indeed the similar things may apply partly in China because China is so advanced in digital payments for individuals. But the second angle was it struck me uh, very much the sort of the the, um, sophisticated uh, academic musings of an incumbent uh, economy that looking at the world and saying this looks like change it's a little bit uncertain gosh I see risk everywhere why would I even do this and I, I I said to someone it's a little bit someone sitting around saying why do we need mobile telephones anyway you know fixed lines are perfectly okay as long as you can arrange to be in the right place at the right time and it was in sense some sense a failure of imagination about how this may be happening it also didn't take any account of the fact that regardless of what the House of Lords may say, China and many other places are moving ahead. The Bahamas has got one, you know, so should the UK have one or not? I mean, there, there is an international context here and it, it didn't really get into that. And I, I finally, I would say a whole bunch of people came out the next day and in the UK and said, you know, basically what I've been saying, that uh, this is a bit too conservative an outlook and indeed the Bank of England itself is, I think, more uh, forward-looking in that particular report. Um, so, th- so that was my thought on the House of Lords. C- could you, Alex, repeat your second question about the, the geopolitical Sure.
0: Um, uh, and I was referring also uh, to the fact that uh, there are, in the West, uh, intelligence uh, outfit that pointed finger to China, saying that there is a possibility that um, digital yuan could be a way to avoid SWIFT and, uh, in a way, to avoid sanction.
2: Yeah. Um, and and you know, from, from the Chinese perspective, not just the Chinese perspective, but from, from many economists around the world, they look around and say, uh, we depend on the US dollar. Um, and firstly, the US may sanction us. And secondly, in times of crisis, and this was what Gong and I were looking at 10 years ago, uh, and in times of global financial crisis, the US banks cut off US dollar trade finance to people in Asia and Chinese exporters struggle to get financing nothing to do with politics just economics Uh, and wouldn't it be good to have an alternative and and from from a less geopolitical perspective I would say uh, a, a, a network design which rests on a single point through the US is not as resilient as the technology allows pair-to-pair direct trades and so i I think there is something in that the the countries are looking for alternatives um now whether the cbdc gets that for the reasons we talked about yes in in in, you know certain extreme situations maybe it does but actually what gets you there more is, is a bunch of different digital currencies in different countries around the world all transacting directly with one another in in a more sort of resilient resilient decentralized way Um, i would say i mean a lot of the 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 concerns uh, or statements picked up you know go further to you know the point of i I think there's been some lobbying in the u.s to say we should ban the digital renminbi from sort of google and apple platforms because the chinese may end up sort of surveilling the, the the payments habits of the Americans or something like that, which strikes me as this sort of extreme, you know, ridiculous securitization of everything and then a, a paranoia that, that has little basis in anything. I'm going to start saying quite uh, unreasonable phrasings now, but, you know, there are areas one can be legitimately concerned, you know, whether one is you know, on the Chinese side looking at the US or the US side looking at China, but I don't think this is one of them.
0: I can agree uh, in some respect with what you said. Uh, If I just remember looking years ago, it was in all the news uh, when Bitcoin started to be popular that terrorist organizations were using Bitcoin to found uh, their activity. Uh, It was not very practical, but then one day uh, Stablecoin jumped in and then uh, uh, ledger and cryptocurrency stable coins start to be practical for, for terrorist organization. Having that, uh, the, the question from the audience are piling up, uh, so just move one uh, uh, that resonates with what just you said uh, and is for uh, Srini. Uh, what are the benefit and risk of CBDC? And uh, this also resonated with my thinking that it's a zero-sum game. Who could win and who could lose from this initiative?
3: Thanks, Alex. That's a very good question. Um, you know, as I mentioned already, uh, countries are looking at CBDCs for a variety of their own individual needs. And, um, you know, the uh, views on benefits and risks um, for CBDCs are also evolving and not necessarily the same across uh, different uh, countries and jurisdictions. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, given uh, you know, uh, there, were, there was a recent report of the of the MAS, which essentially said, look, there is no strong case for us to have a retail CBDC. At the same time, there is no major hurdle for us to have a CBDC either. So, you know, I mean, if you want it, we can have it. If you don't need it, we don't need it. And we really want need it now. No. So, I mean, and this is a sort of. A, a balanced assessment of the benefits and risks. So, keep, given that, keeping that in context, I've touched upon some benefits like financial inclusion. Other speakers have touched upon, you know, improving cross-border efficiency and you know, improving uh, reducing risk to financial stability, etc. So, let me touch upon what I think are a few of the other benefits that may be uh, from a CBDC perspective. Uh, one of them, essentially, you know, in my opening, which I said, I mean, it could be a foundation for the future of a country's payment system when we are much more online than even more uh, than we are already today. So it could, in a sense, lay the digital foundation for the payment system of a country. So that's one benefit which could help the entire economy. Uh, One of the other things that it could also do is, you know, help financial innovation and meet demands for payment services that we probably don't have today because we don't know we need them. Okay, and this is the entire future of this entire thing of innovation, right? So, you know, we, we get goods and services. We never knew we could not live without an iPhone until we had one. So, you know, that's, um, so they, that, so that's the thing that it could do. And the core reason for that being that CBDC is, you know, it, it's digital money free from credit and liquidity risks, which is not the case with other forms of digital currency. So it's a public good provided by the central bank. And uh, so it's safe, it's liquid, it's going to, you know, once they're introduced and it's, it's widely, and it'll be widely accepted just as cash is today. So other firms, particularly small firms, which today have issues in, in you know, they, they cannot develop their own e-money or their own forms of payment. It's easy for Apple to do so, but it's much probably difficult if, uh, you know, uh, PSU University has to introduce his own e-money. And there's a different level of risk and money and, you know, uh, financial outlay involved. So, whereas building, you know, uh, apps or building new forms of um, um, products and services on a on a publicly provided platform of digital currency could be easier. So, there could be innovation and more importantly, the barriers to, Entry for smaller firms could also be reduced. So these are some benefits that, uh, that the CBDC could have. Uh, the, the, I mean, you know, Andrew also touched upon the speed of in, uh, improving speed of cross-border transactions that could happen across as well, including in in you know, within in, in domestic and all in, in domestic transactions as well. As the possibility of making much smaller amounts of payments or transfers, which are probably not economic in today's payment system world, so um, so these are some of the things that, uh, uh, that that are benefits. I just wanted to touch upon one area which has been discussed by both the earlier speakers in terms of benefits, which is uh, you know my colleagues Bert Hoffman and Bojan Liu have done research at at EAI on the RMB internationalization and how that can benefit. Uh, you know, CNY's, ECNY's own, uh, uh, you know, make cross-border transactions easier and at lower cost. And one of the things that they find is that you know, it's, uh, because the CNY is already backed by the full faith and credit of the sovereign, there will be no need to go through the existing clearance and settlement systems in China to make for the, uh, to achieve finality for transactions that Andrew touched upon. So the process will be immediate. So one of the constraints facing the RMB is basically where settlements can only be done in the following day, given time differences, etc., which can, which no longer is the case. So these are some of the benefits. Let's touch. Uh, you know, just you. My, you ask for the risks as well, and uh, you know this is something that uh, uh, you know, regulators are paid to look at risks uh, more than benefits. I guess in some sense, so therefore they've been looking a lot at them. And um, one of the areas is, uh, you know, does a, a CBDC change the fundamental relationship between a central bank and commercial banks? So this is a question that many um, regulators, many jurisdictions, many countries are grappling with. So, for example, I mean, uh, commercial banks essentially rely on low-cost funds to uh, finance their loans. And and these low-cost funds, they raise through bank deposits. Now, if a CBDC uh, becomes widely available, um, and uh, depending on some of its technical characteristics, and we won't go into that right now, Uh, it could become a very good substitute or even a perfect substitute for bank deposits. And it would have the additional benefit that you are not taking on the risk of the commercial bank. The risk that you're taking on is the risk of the sovereign. So in that sense, could a CBDC potentially cause deposits in the banking system to decline, thereby increasing the funding costs for banks and thereby uh, those banks pass on those higher cost of funds to uh, businesses and the general economy and consumers uh, through the uh, higher interest rates on bank loans. So this is a risk that you know uh, many countries are thinking about in terms of how you know the the the, the possibility that the CBDC could may do this or create this risk and how to manage it. Uh, another uh, risk that countries are thinking about is. You know, could the probable if, if there is a, a period of stress like we had in the two thousand and eight nine global financial crisis, uh, could the presence of a CBDC um, make the possibility of bank runs higher uh, than it is today? So if the if the residents of a country, deposit holders, and banks commercial banks, if they could convert their deposits very easily into CBDCs, they could switch out of bank deposits, especially in times of financial stress, and move into uh, the CBDC, which is you know, a sovereign um, liability. And therefore, this could actually uh, make uh, or increase the probability, exacerbate the risks of bank runs. Uh, so in, in a sense, this is the flight to quality issue. So. How you know, how should this um, risk be addressed is a question that um, uh, many countries are thinking about. Um, again, the Monetary Authority of Singapore and its recent report highlights one issue, which is uh, probably you know, particularly true for smaller countries, which is the possibility of CBDCs uh, contributing to uh, capital uh, flow volatility. So, you know, if you have um, non-residents can hold uh, CBDCs, uh, then, you know, I mean, if they switch in and switch out of these currencies, does that increase the possibility of macroeconomic risks through uh, capital flow route? Uh, Of course, the other issues, you know, privacy. I mean, we all, uh, even when we are doing legal transactions, we don't all necessarily have to do money laundering. We still prefer the privacy that uh, cash offers. Uh, when uh, the CBDC would obviously make it easier to trace whether the whether the things are whether the transactions are legal or illegal, so this is a question that you know uh, um, risk that uh, many countries are thinking about, and the degrees to which uh, things like you know your customer rules or uh, anti money laundering rules, how do how, you know uh, what is the what is the spectrum on which these need to be applied uh, on a risk-based manner. And uh, then of course, there are you know, technical issues. Is a CBDC usable if the internet goes down and how? Okay, so you know, if you are going to have a digital platform, this is a very, you know, very important risk to think about. And then, you know, can the CBDC system be hacked? And how do you actually you know, uh, prevent, uh, how do you manage cyber risks? So uh, these are you know, offline, if you can use a CBDC offline, that makes it much more usable. Uh, but then, you know, these are some of the issues—the resiliency issues—are some of the things that uh, um, that the countries are thinking about. So, and of course, the la- I mean, maybe the last one I'll touch upon is, uh, you know, what I uh, mentioned briefly earlier: currency substitution. I mean, if a country does not pay a CBDC, or if its own CBDC is less popular among its residents and foreign, uh, than a uh, foreign uh, than than a CBDC of a different country and the residents of the country start using that, then the impact on monetary policy for that country can be significant. So these are some of the, you know, sort of the issues that, uh, you know, uh, many countries are thinking through. And, uh, you know, uh, there is no final word yet. However, the, you know, emerging, uh, if I may, the emerging consensus seems to be, look, these risks are real. They need to be thought about. We need to find solutions for all of these things. But these are definitely manageable. And uh, if we can can come up with intelligent solutions uh, to address some of these, and they should not stand in the way of introducing CBDCs, which uh, on balance, the benefits may outweigh the risks. So I think that's where kind of the current thinking on this issue stands.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Especially talking about cyber resilience is something that Singapore, for many years, uh, is working very hard in looking at the cyber resilience and protecting uh, the financial sector. Uh, I mean, we are looking now at a problem with attack ransomware and so on, but the doomsday scenario that you just mentioned with the internet down, I don't think is not only a problem related to CBDC, if it's the case. among the many questions that we received from the audience, there are three questions and I will have uh, one back together in a row uh, for Professor Xiao The the first uh, is uh, from uh, Nadia Hassan uh, and she asked uh, to Professor Xiaogan, when is the pilot period for the digital renminbi expected to end? Since China is a pioneer for issuing digital currency, what sort of best practice from the pilot run will be key takeaways? From other country, learning from the Chinese experience. That's the first question. Uh, uh,
1: thank you. Actually, uh, I I have seen also the, uh, uh, the next two questions. You know, it, it's uh, uh, all actually come to uh, one point. You know, uh, that's that the uh, you know the, the what the lessons is that the uh, digital currency by central bank. Uh, is a public infrastructure. It it does not mean to destroy the existing, you know, commercial banking and other financial systems. Uh, So uh, if, for example, the digital currency is going to pay interest rate, uh, pay interest, then, you know, it's going to disrupt the entire banking system, right? So that is not going to happen unless the, the, the commercial banking systems, you know, start, uh, some chaos, uh, uh, you know. Uh, and this also applies to uh, the, the relationship between, you know, R&B, digital R&B and digital U.S. dollar. You know, if the U.S. dollar is playing a very important uh, global reserve and it does not, uh, for example, weaponize, uh, weaponizing, then uh, if China starts uh, to use digital currency to disrupt the existing system, then it's going to hurt uh, itself and also, uh, you know, everybody else, right? So there's a balance uh, in uh, in this. Uh, but uh, I think uh, uh, the point is that uh, if there's, for example, monopoly by Tencent or Alibaba, if there's uh, like, uh, you know, weaponization of the US dollar, then, uh, yeah, I think China has incentives to push the digital r and towards, uh, uh, you know, more powerful, uh, you know, uh, functions, you know, in order to avoid those, uh, you know, chaos. Uh, so I think uh, uh, really uh, this, the, there's a lot of lessons, you know, uh, uh, from China's experiment because uh, 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 theoretically digital currency, a digital central bank, digital currency can replace a lot of things. But you don't want to make a disruption to the existing order unless you find something even more disruptive. Uh, so so I, I think that that's the my my simple way to answer the, 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 you know, the first question and, and somehow there's another two questions. No. Uh, okay. Yeah, thank
0: you very much. You also answered the, the question from Azif Suja, my colleague from MEI, and from Sarah Chen from EAI, uh, uh, that we looking at, at um, China CDB uh, remunerating interest. Uh, this also, I think, uh, uh, raises a very serious issue, something that uh, Andrew just touched before, talking about the UAE, to the fact that, that uh, Yes, uh, we are talking about financial innovation, but also we have old problems and all problems are related, uh, for example, to interest rate uh, and for Sharia compliance uh, in Islamic finance. That's not possible. So uh, UAE is already looking uh, at uh, fatwa, looking at how uh, digital currency CBDC can be halal. Uh, but also without moving too far from Singapore, in Malaysia and in Indonesia there are very advanced research on this topic and it looks like that CBDC are more easily uh, in accord to Islamic finance uh, compared to cryptocurrency, especially when you don't have interest rate or you are not leveraging uh, as a speculatory asset, uh, the, the digital asset. I mean, say that, uh, I will just ask the, the question from uh, my colleague Azir Suja uh, to Andrew, uh, that in your opinion, Andrew, do you believe that China's early adoption of a digital currency is going to threaten the dollar's role as the main global reserve
2: currency? I guess the one word answer to that is no, uh, but let me, let me say a bit more than that. Um, an interesting well-phrased question around reserve currency and the holding of reserve. And there I would be very much in accord with, with what gun has talked about, that this is a technology and what matters is the institutional setup. Indeed, Yu Xiaoshuan, the former central bank governor, made a speech on this. former Chinese central bank governor made a speech on this. Again, saying, look to the institutional setup around um, rule of law, around... The, also, the willingness, there's a whole set of macroeconomic considerations around the willingness to either remove capital controls and allow run trade deficits so that overseas assets can grow, uh, so that there are enough uh, reserve assets actually to be held in terms that people want to hold them. And I think the digital renminbi has a, makes a very, very small contribution to that Um Where it can play a role, as we've been touching on, is in the use of the renminbi in international trade, if it becomes more convenient uh, and is simply a better proposition, uh, cheaper, better, faster proposition. And uh, Srini's touched on the MAS work on that. I saw some work um, about how use of e-renminbi would bring tremendous benefits to the Singapore economy in terms of, of savings. Uh, but that's not saying people then want to necessarily hang on to the MMB. Once they've got them, they may just want to get into something else unless these other institutional con- conditions are uh, addressed. And we need there to just look at context. We, we, it took, I think it was 50 plus years for the, the, the dollar to take over from the, the pound sterling. And so there's everything to say that in what, 50 years' time, the renminbi could have a very critical role in the reserve assets of the world. But these are are not things that happen overnight by their very nature.
0: Thank you. Uh, You mentioned convenient and better proposition. But uh, if we look at convenient uh, for... uh illegal means. Uh, and this, I have a question from Shuang. Uh, and it's quite interesting in the question, he mentioned uh, something that is not a disaster, like Srini said, the, the internet collapsing, but he mentioned that his phone battery is very low and he can log out of the section when the battery run out. So this can be an issue when all your money is on your mobile phone and your battery run out. But his question is uh, how will CBDC be easier to try for financing of transnational crime. And here we, we touch not only a problem of crime, but a problem of privacy itself. Srini, the floor is yours.
3: Uh, I wish I was an expert on that question. I don't think I've tried to finance any uh, you know, crime using that, but before I will I'll try to come to that question. Um, but before that, I just wanted to add something to the discussion that is ongoing. Uh, On uh, the role of the RMB replacing the uh, U.S. dollar, if uh, you permit me, Alex, just uh, just a minute. So, I mean, you know, I like to look at these things from a fundamental perspective. I mean, you know, money has in any economy has basically three functions: it's either a unit of account, it's a medium of exchange, and it's a store of value. The RMB essentially performs all of these functions within China. The question is, if it's supposed to replace the dollar, will it perform these functions outside? And uh, you know, it needs to perform these functions outside as well, outside its own country. And if you look at the data today, I mean, it's just as a store of value, it's about 3% of world reserves. So it's, it's getting there. It's not zero, but it's getting there slowly. As a medium of exchange, it's about you know 2% of world's payments, about 4% of the world's foreign exchange trading. So again, it's growing gradually. As a unit of account, though, although there have been, you know, um, oil futures, etc. started within the trading within within China. Its still, role is still small. So I, I agree with the other two speakers that look. Ultimately, it depends on China's, you know, uh, the trust that you know um, global participants have. Uh, in China's uh, markets, the uh, degree to which the uh, the RMB is convertible, the policy actions, et cetera, um, and, and less on whether you have a digital uh, yuan or you don't have one. And, uh, you know, clearly China is extremely well positioned. And as Andrew mentioned, 50 years from today, things could be different. Um, But on the other hand, you know, there's still a way to go uh, for China to, you know, replace the dollar. So that's sort of, I'm just agreeing with other speakers. Now, in terms of the use of the CBDC for illegal... transactions um, I guess the fact that you know I mean the, the okay so the, the the this is an issue that is being discussed clearly the cryptocurrencies uh, you know the in, the anonymity of the cryptocurrencies makes it uh, likely uh, you know more likely for them to be used as you touched upon Alex later in the, the entry of stable coins um, and uh, so uh, the degree to which uh, cbdcs are identi- you know are, are identifiable with the holder the amount of uh, the, the more imp- is 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 going to be one driving factor as to whether you know they are or not they are used for illegal means the other issue also of course is the uh, the degree to which uh, how much cbdc can an individual hold this is a very active point of discussion across many countries because as i touched upon i mean quite apart from the illegal part uh, use for illegal transactions you know it could pose systemic risks and if every if uh, cbdc was available in unlimited quantities to everybody to switch out of bank deposits into cbdcs whenever you wanted so i think that, that if you have only a relatively small if you have a cap on the amount of uh, funds that you could hold in CBDC, then that would obviously reduce the attractiveness of the you of CBDC for illegal transactions. Um, uh, so, I mean, so therefore, I, you know, I mean, uh, not being, I, I, I'm, I accept that I'm not an expert in figuring out how to use, uh, you know, digital currencies for illegal transactions, but within that, and I think the main, the cap will be the, the or, or rather the, you um, key uh, features that will drive whether they are used or not will be the degree to which the transactions can be anonymous and the degree to which the size of the transaction can be significantly large. Um, you know, If both of these are addressed, I, you know, I think the risk of the use in uh, illegal transactions can be minimized.
0: No, thank you very much. Uh, you explained it very well the balance between trust and anonymity. I do believe that in the pilot program of the Digital UN, there is uh, uh, a limit of a few thousand RMB in which there is a guarantee that the transaction is anonymized, and, and then, as you mentioned, at the size when the size start to grow then uh, this uh, anonymity uh, is no more guaranteed. But um, having said that at the beginning, if I recall correct, uh, when we were talking about uh, cryptocurrency, there was this diffused perception that having diffused ledger was a guarantee of absolute anonymity. And then this perception was dispelled a couple of years ago by the FBI, when thanks to uh, Cyber Honeypot, they started to arrest uh, organization financing terrorism or criminal activity via Bitcoin. Uh, moving from uh, this question um, to another one from the public, from uh, Georgi Buskin, uh, a colleague of mine at MEI, uh, it's a question both for Professor Siogan and for Andrew Caney. Uh, does the CBDC impact to the implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative in any sense? And I will add it personally uh, to the Digital Silk Road also. Uh, Andrew, the floor
2: is yours okay i was <laughs> listen to see i was going on that first but i'm i'm happy to to take a crack at that uh in in a sense yes um digital currency can be part of digital silk road um and china has increasingly you know updating its focus within belt and road to both focus on areas that are less asset and lending intensive so you know fewer construction of bridges and and, and railways and whatever um, technology doesn't need quite the, the same amount of lending, but also more relevant in many ways in an increasingly technology uh, driven world. That there is a, a big demand among countries saying, How can we use digital to get better? And uh, China's at the forefront of many of those aspects of bringing technology into business, into society. So, what can we learn there? And digital currencies are part of that. Um, I don't think it's transformative, though. I I do think about, I I split it into this. We've been talking about two things. One is the use of the e-renminbi. So will people start doing more, you know, do more trade in in renminbi or whatever, just because it's there in digital format versus uh, other countries saying, how do we have our own digital currency? Does that make sense for us? And then linking them together. Yes, that can help. Um, And I'd sort of add a third to this, the sort of China's leadership role. And I I draw an analogy uh, somewhat with 5G uh, and and with Huawei, um, that China is in the lead at piloting. And we use the word pilot. It's hundreds of millions of of, of wallets that are open in China with digital currency in it. Um, I do remember years ago when I was working in credit cards being told, yes, we're going to pilot this. We're going to start with, I think six million uh, you know customers is our pilot, and this is at a time when the British company I was working for had a total of six million customers. Uh, so a pilot in the Chinese context is of course pretty large. Um, trying through this is building up a lot of experience, both sort of practical experience. There are a whole bunch of choices. Shrin has done a great job of laying out all these different choices, and i would I would say a lot of the learnings from China are exactly the The nuances and the details of those choices, the way you need to work with the existing ecosystem, with the existing digital payment providers, how do you bring in anonymity, at what level of payments, what does happen if the mobile phone battery goes, and so on. There's a lot of stuff you need to know about. And there's also the building of the technical infrastructure. And what China is doing is really putting itself at the forefront of that at a global level. So if I'm a, another country somewhere along the uh, Silk Road, be it a digital one or not, then then China is a natural discussion partner for saying, "How do I get this going in my country?" Um, and saying, "You know, oh, Renminbi, thank you very much. I've got my own currency, but how do I make my own currency digital?" And by the way, do you, you know, can you help me? Can I buy some technology from you that will help do it? Um, and just as Huawei has carved out a position in five G based on technical innovation, you know, coupled with Uh, some some relatively low cost financing that's an opportunity for China and then just as in the same way that um, you know people look at Huawei from the point of view you've got more 5G patents than anybody else and you're well positioned in 6G you equally then have uh, countries particularly uh, the US and in Europe you know raising concerns about technological leadership being with uh, a Chinese company but I think there is a, a real role for China there to build on what it's learned within China, and just as uh, and, and in broader development terms saying, you know, there's a chance to learn from us without actually having, you don't have to make every single choice that China has made in this digital currency, but we have a pretty good understanding of the menu of options, and we can, can help you on that.
0: Thank you, Andrew. So again
1: the floor is yours. Uh, well, I just want to uh, add that uh, uh, digital currency is really a, a infrastructure. You know, uh, there's no way for uh, I mean digital R&B, you know. Uh, there's no way for the digital RB or the central bank to play all the uh, you know roles and functions. You know, along the better road road initiative. You know, right? So, so what it uh, will do is to facilitate other payment settlement systems. You know, including the. Alibaba and the Ten Cents, you know. So, so and uh, so that to enhance, uh, you know, the entire, uh, you know, RB uh, denominated, uh, you know, RB like an ecosystem. So that will definitely help. But the digital RB itself is not going to play a very specific role, uh, you know, in future projects. You know, it, its main function is really as a cash, you know, for small. Uh, volume uh, transactions, you know that uh, uh, you know uh, is it, it, kind of uh, like uh, the, the the cash, you know. So uh, yeah, that's the only thing I want to add uh, to Andrew's uh, comment.
0: Now I have um, a question for all the speaker, and it's a very direct question: Who is going to to benefit from a greater use of digital currency? If we want to start with Srini.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, um, no, thank you. I think you know, I mean, as I mentioned, I think you know there are scenarios in which um, you know the uh, the general economy could benefit. Uh, so, in the, in the sense that you know, the entire uh, the, the, the residents of the country, um, in terms of you know, if the CBDC were to be a foundation for uh, digital foundation for. A much improved payments uh, mechanism within the country domest- uh, domestically and for you know, cross border transactions. So I think there is, you know, um, possibilities for it to uh, benefit um, a, a large section uh, of the population. Uh, you know, I mean, given the, uh, as I touched upon earlier, again, I mean, you know, uh, for those segments that are currently excluded from the financial services for whatever reason, or for those section segments that may be excluded in future if firms were to refuse to accept cash as a, as a form of payment. And this is an issue, again, that the Monetary Authority of Singapore has also clarified that, you know, which is uh, in its report that says, look, you know, if you take cash in Singapore, you've got to take Singapore dollar, but you don't have to take cash. Okay, so <laughs> you have the option of saying, I'm not taking cash. So, you know, um, then, you know, so the, in that kind of situations, you know, those kind those segments of people would be helped. Um, Different, uh, I also touched upon the fact that, uh, you know, uh particularly smaller firms, innovative firms could be helped as well, uh, you know, because they could build uh, on some of the platforms uh, on, on the core public good platform, as uh, Professor Shagang has mentioned, uh, which a public good, it's infrastructure. So once you ride on that infrastructure, you could develop uh, new uh, things, uh, new products and services. So I think I'll stop there and let, uh, you know, come, because I think there are, there's, a, there's, a, there's a large number of benefits, uh, of, uh, different segments of the population could benefit from a CBDC. Yes, I agree. Uh,
1: I, I think I uh, just want to add one point that uh, you know, the digital uh, uh, money uh, uh, actually uh, will, will help in the areas where the, the private sector you know, would find uh, not very profitable. Yeah. That's really the area I think uh, uh, it, it has an important role and that will benefit uh, uh, a lot of low income you know, uh, people. And also uh, in dealing with like the climate change, you know some uh, you know areas which really uh, is hard to generate the private interest. Uh, it's really hard to make a profit. Uh, so I think that's really the key uh, area. And another area is uh, basically uh, you know th- th- this is like a, a competition in infrastructure. Uh, you know, uh, and I think uh, that uh, is help is going to help uh, to uh, you know, diffuse uh, the the kind of the, the role of uh, you know uh, U.S. as the U.S. dollar as the main uh, uh, currency because once the uh, you know the, the the building of public uh, infrastructure becomes cheaper and easier, every countries can have their own uh, currencies uh, become a complete ecosystems, uh, and then in that sense, I think uh, uh, the the role of U.S. dollar will continue to be dominating, but uh, uh, people have alternatives you know uh, that, that that i think is, uh, is something which is uh, at the geopolitical level uh, is kind of happening and the people have a lot of
2: interest on in where it would go andrew your comment yes n- not a lot to add that what's been said really I think the the question of where there are benefits we, we've touched on quite a few whether there benefits to the individual user or their system-led benefits, particularly around resilience and risk management, um, be that against um, outages, as we talked about, uh, or failures as particular institutions, or be that in a geopolitical sense, uh, that there are more choices uh, for different different countries. What it does then do is, I mean, the, the loser in that sense who wants to be explicit about it is, over time, the US loses its, its dominant uh, power through the USD. That, I think that's a long way off. But there is this question that you know, Gong to touched on about the extent to which positions get weaponized. and Every, every state likes to take advantage of, of weapons it has at its disposal using weapons in the broadest sense. Uh, and yet there are also reactions to that.
0: I see. Uh, as a moderator, you, you made my life very difficult, all the three of you, because you agreed on everything up to now. <laughs> so I'm really hoping uh, with this question that I just received uh, to find some disagreement among the three of you. Uh, and the question is for the three of you, is uh, both Russia and Iran are excluded from global finance. Can they benefit from uh, China CBDC unnoticed? Srini, floor is yours. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you, Alex. <laughs> okay. Um, that's a tough one to answer. I mean, let me, maybe we can use the current situation um, and China's reaction to the san- uh, to sanctions on Russia as an example, at least to you know, think through what the future situation may be what is the situation today i mean there is you know a partnership without limits um, officially stated but when you actually look at what is you know happening on the ground you know there is more than enough evidence to show that Chinese financial institutions, Chinese financial sector, Chinese firms, etc. are not sidestepping the sanctions or are not going out of their way to, you know, help Russia evade sanctions. There is a concern um, about secondary sanctions uh, that, you know, might be imposed on institutions or on countries actively trying to help uh, Russia evade the sanctions imposed on it by the other countries. So, it, that's the with it, with that as the overall context, and with what Professor Shogang has mentioned earlier. That look a, a, an e, um, you know uh, an ECNY or any CBDC for that matter is basically cash in a digital form. I mean, that's uh, that's what it is. So if you if you combine these two, I don't particularly see the very existence of or, or just the existence of a digital currency. As helping evade, you know, or, or or helping get around some of these issues that, um, say, Iran and uh, and Russia may be facing, um, you know, I think there are. Uh, I would also again come back to the thing uh, to, to the point that I touched upon earlier, which is, you know, the uh, is the, the the question regarding whether a CBDC is going to entirely replace cash in a particular economy, uh, or is that going to remain at least for some time. Uh, in, for, in the foreseeable future, to be an alternative, but a limited alternative to the citizens in terms of the quantity of available, uh, that's available to each person. I think this would also influence the degree to which you know this can help. Uh, this can help evade sanctions. The one area where uh, I think it would be uh, an important uh, you know, to look at is you know if cross-border trade is in you know facilitated by. Projects such as the MCD, CBDC bridge, et cetera, that you mentioned, and you know, global central banks do figure out how to work better together using their own CBDCs. Then it's not a question of evading sanctions, but it's a question of more of you know facilitating trade more than it is today. Um, I would not look. I would look at it that way. So, um, so I think my the position that I would take, and I don't know if my you know if the other panelists would agree, would be that no, an ECNY or any. CBDC, for that matter, by itself, is unlikely to uh, contribute in a big way to, in some form, evading con- you know con- the constraints imposed by sanctions.
0: So again, if you want to touch on this,
3: well, I,
1: I think uh, I agree. You know, uh, you know, digital currency is not going to change much uh, in terms of uh, how China and they rush out, you know, they're going to enhance their trade or whatever. Uh, But I think uh, uh, it does raise a question uh, that uh, uh, when uh, the dollar systems uh, becomes like uh, weaponized, then, you know, a lot of countries is going to think about, uh, uh, you know, not just the digital currency, it's just, you know, how to really, uh, you know avoid uh, uh, the sanctions and also uh trying to build independent systems you know and i think that that's really uh, the danger uh in terms of fragmenting uh the global economy and the finance uh, so i think uh, uh, digital currency is, is, is just a, uh, like a one trigger uh, but it's not going to, itself is going to, not going to do much but uh, if it triggers uh you know uh, uh, uh multiple uh financial systems you know in, in the world then we are going to face with a really serious fragmentation of the uh, global finance andrew
0: if you have something to
2: yeah not, not much add to add to it uh i mean right now i'm russian iran i'd love you know i love to do more trade in renminbi uh, some of that is happening that's not digital just standard renminbi at that will be in the form of digital records as we've been talking about that this sort of trade is already it's not done by people not just done by people sending suitcases of renminbi banknotes it, it's mostly done by, by uh, on-screen transfers and the issue more is the fact that the chinese financial institutions mainly for fear of secondary sanctions uh maybe for other reasons are not uh not wanting to do that and china union pay did not come in and take the place of of these at uh, mastercard in in russia um how does the cbdc help that well it makes any renminbi transaction that is going to happen that bit easier i guess but it doesn't change that fundamental uh unless one gets to a stage where the the structure of the financial system means that financial institutions don't worry so much about the us dollar access which is much a much more long-term consideration and it's one where cbdc's can can help the world get there i think and there'll be more uh currency to currency conversions rather than by the us dollar but that's long a long way away and a long way it's not helping russia and iran right now
0: as, uh, as I just mentioned, I'm doing a terrible job as moderator, not only because again, the three of you agreed, but I also agree with you. Uh, in a matter of sanction, uh, you need to think the, the willingness and the capabilities. So if we talk at uh, CBDC, uh, even if Andrew mentioned that the number are staggering in the, in the pilot uh, project, uh, still there is not enough volume for avoid this kind of sanction. And then again, as Srinivas mentioned, uh, uh, it appears that there is uh, no will uh, to uh, go against the sanction from from China, especially the one on uh, on Russia, at the moment. I see that uh, we basically answered all the question from from our public, and uh, I will just ask uh, each one of you if you have uh, just uh, an ending note uh, before we we close this session. Uh, Sjogan, the floor is yours.
1: Uh, n- n- not not much. Uh, I think uh, 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 my uh, my key point here is that uh, uh, just to look at the digital currency, you know, similar to the transition from the like a metal currency towards paper, you know, currency, right? Of course, it's much much more convenient. The transaction cost is low, but after all, the currency has a very important role of, uh, you know, as a medium of uh, regulation. So, that role I think is not going to change, you know. So, so what we all discussing about, uh, you know, like uh, sanctions and uh, uh, other uh, like uh, uh, illegal transactions, they are all related to regulation. So, uh, the, the cryptocurrency, uh, which does not have, uh, you know, the medium for uh, regulation. So, that's why it has tremendous, tremendous difficulty, right. But the central bank uh, currency does carry, you know, the role as medium of regulation. If you use it, then uh, it will be regulated, you know. uh, So I I think that that, that's uh, my point, you know, we we, we should not uh, focus too much on this technical improvement in terms of the reduction of transaction cost. uh, But instead we should focus on the role of regulation in the new uh, digital, Error.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew, Your last thought.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's a great set of initials: C, B, D, C. Sometimes get them in the wrong order, but it's a great it's a great set of initials. A great concept. It's got this um, background or linkage, you know, rightly and wrongly, to crypto and things like that. It's a lot of nitty gritty stuff. There's a lots of individual choices about how it fits into an existing ecosystem and financial regulation structure. And I think people need to get into that uh, to really understand the impact it's going to have. There's a lot of issues around confidentiality we've touched on, privacy, uh, role of existing financial institutions. And it's going to be a much more organic process of that technology getting embedded there. It's not like a big bang, we're all gonna rush into Bitcoin. Uh, And so tone down some of the uh, extreme hype about it, and also uh, sitting, I guess, here in London, where we, uh, some, some at least come up with somewhat extreme views about what's going to happen into the world, uh, be a bit less uh, paranoid about some new overarching system that's going to take over the world. It's not like that.
0: I really like your take uh, about being organic, because we are witnessing, as we speak, a crypto winter with a fall again, uh, and run on a bank when there is no bank in cryptocurrency. Uh, And uh, with this doomsday note, I just give the floor uh, to Srini.
3: Thanks, Alex. I I don't have much to add. I mean, just to say that I think, you know, for people interested in this area, this is going to be an exciting area of work for the next, for the foreseeable future, I mean, for the next five to 10 years. There is a lot to contribute, in my view, for institutions um, represented on this panel and for maybe amongst the, uh, you know, among the audience. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be, you know, possibilities of, of some PhD theses coming out of all of this stuff, because I think, you know, uh, this is a new, uh, I mean, Uh, moving from, while it is a technical step in terms of moving from paper money to digital, uh, it's also, uh, you know, I I agree with Shogang that, you know, regulation is important, but innovation is always, if you look back, at least in the financial sphere, has been about getting around regulation, okay, and then regulators catch up. Okay, so you know, um, so the question is, you know, and obviously one of the reasons if you know half ingest is regulators are never paid as much as the innovators are, so therefore they're always one step behind. So you know, the the issue is, um, what are the innovations that is possible? What are some of the key policy concerns that should be across um, countries, uh, and what are the lessons that can be learned? I think these are all places where uh, all areas where we could uh, engage in fruitful discussions going forward and hopefully contribute to what is going on. Uh, I definitely see a world where in five to 10 years, there will be CBDCs pretty much in, a, in, in many countries uh, across the world. Um, the question is, you know, how uh, will that world be considerably uh, better than the world that we are in today? Uh, and um, will that really you know, yield all the benefits that we think they will yield? I think each of us probably has a contribution to make to that discussion and process, and hopefully we will.
1: Thank
0: you very much. And uh, with your note uh, on looking for a better world, uh, please allow me to thank uh, all the three of you for attending today's seminar all our audience of almost 100 participants that have been with us uh, until the end. And also one personal thanks uh, to uh, James Tan and Sharon Kong from a- MEI and AI uh, media department that helped us make this webinar possible. Thank you to all of you and have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.